So I'm reading this series of books. I just finished the 20th one in the series, and I think there's 22. So I love these books. And my biggest problem with reading them is I usually don't get started until like after nine o'clock at night. And the other night I was reading this book and I just wanted to finish it. It was so exciting and like, uh, I really should go to bed. But I just want to finish the book. There's just a little bit more. And then I get to the end of the chapter and I go, oh, really should go to bed. And I'm like, no, I, I'm almost, I should just keep pushing through. And I finally finished the book and it was so satisfying, except it was like in the middle of the night. But I just had to find out how it ended. And then I went to bed and I couldn't sleep because I was busy thinking about how the book ended. I have a friend who will start a new book, read a couple of pages in, and then go to the end and read the last page so he knows how the book ends. And then he goes back the beginning and starts reading through. And he does it because he says it takes all the stress of the book out of the way. Uh, okay, I sort of get that. We, we either have a love or hate relationship with spoilers. Some of us like to know how things end up. Others of us like the tension of not knowing, like me staying up till, you know, all hours of night just to finish my book because I'm so excited about it. But what if it's not a book or a movie? What if it's your life? What if you're watching someone that you love who's seriously ill? What if you're feeling crushed under a problem and you wonder if you'll survive? Sometimes it's just the waiting and the not knowing that's really hard. I stand with people all the time who are facing uncertainty and oftentimes they say to me, we could deal with what it is if we knew what, it, what we were up against. And if you're in a situation like that, wouldn't you like to have a spoiler then? In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the very end of Jesus's final teaching to his disciples. It actually starts in John chapter 13, so it's three full chapters, way too long for one sermon, but you should go back and read the whole thing. So he spent about three years, give or take, with his disciples to gather with them, and this is it. It starts in the upper room where they have the Last Supper, and they talk there for a while, and then they take a walk down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in less than 24 hours, Jesus is dead. So this is pretty heavy, pretty powerful stuff that Jesus is dealing with here. And I think that it's pretty amazing that of all of the things Jesus could say as a final word to his disciples, he chooses this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. What Jesus wants his followers to know is whatever they face, he's overcome it and they can have a deep sense of peace. So let's look at some lessons that we can pull out of what Jesus is saying there. Let's start with, sometimes life is hard, but things are not out of God's control. Everybody wants things to be good all of the time. Uh, of course we do, but things aren't always good. Sometimes life is hard. And hard isn't always necessarily bad because sometimes hard things help us grow. It's hard to train for a marathon, but you'll never run the marathon unless you go through the work to do it. 
It's hard to study for the bar or to study for a final exam in a STEM class or something, but unless you put in the work, you'll never get the grade, you'll never pass it. It's hard when our faith is being tested, when we really have to rely on God and not just our own good looks or talents. It's hard when you're pushing through a rough patch in a friendship or in your marriage. It's hard when you have to fight for what you believe in. Those things are all hard, but we grow through them. We grow because they're hard. Other hard things are just hard. Nobody wants to be persecuted, but it happens sometimes. Nobody seeks out pain, unless you're Johnny Knoxville, but most other people don't want to be in pain, but sometimes pain happens. Stuff happens, pain happens, bad things happen, hard things happen, and it's an evidence that things are broken. Now, everybody knows that things are broken, but not everyone has the hope that things are actually in the process of being fixed. And that's one of the things that I love about our faith. We can look at a broken world and we don't have to despair. We don't have to just shrug our shoulders or lament the situation. We can know that our God is at work. No matter how bad things look, God is in the process of recreating things, of making things new. God is present and active in our lives and in the world. And here's the great thing about that. No matter whether it's big or small, no matter whether it's a garden variety stress or physical persecution, no matter whether it's a minor inconvenience or chronic suffering or anything on the spectrum in between, God is present with you. Nothing is too small for God to care about and nothing is too big for God to handle. God knows about your stuff. Now it rains on the just and the unjust. Other people's lives may look perfect, but don't believe it. Social media and what we present to others is carefully curated. Trust me, it's not just you that's struggling. It's not just you that's going through hard times. But things are not out of God's control. Next, you're not alone. God is with you. It's a bit ironic because in the verses right before this, Jesus says that he's about to be alone. And one of the reasons Jesus says he's about to be alone is because his friends, his disciples that he's talking to, are about to desert him. But despite the fact that he's about to be deserted, he wants them to know that they won't be alone. And there's a huge lesson there. We might desert God, but God will never desert us. So Jesus goes on to say, as he's talking about all these heavy things, I haven't said this stuff to you before because I was with you. If you needed encouragement, if you needed somebody to buck you up, I was here, I could do that. But now I'm going away. So I want you to know these things, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. So you still won't be alone. Part of what we have a difficulty with when we're going through hard times is our feelings. Sometimes we feel alone, even if we aren't really. We can't always trust our feelings. They're pretty unreliable. Jesus says, I will never leave you. No matter what's going on, the Holy Spirit is with you as comforter, as advocate, as guide, to remind you that God is on your side, no matter what. That's also a gift 
that we can give to one another. So you can turn to the person next to you and say, I'm a gift to you. We are a gift to each other that God gives because we can be encouragers to each other. We can carry people through difficult times. One of my favorite sayings about faith is that when you don't have faith to see you through, you can rely on the faith of the church to carry you. It's great to think about. It's not just us by ourselves. We're in a community. That's the power of small groups. That's the power of care groups. That's the power of deep spiritual friendships. You're not alone, Jesus says. I'm here with you. I've given you other people as a gift. But that's also why we need to take stock of what our response is to other people who are going through difficult times because our response is, can make a huge difference in people's lives. We can remind them that God is with them and present with them, or we can reinforce that they're alone by our responses. One of the greatest things that's going on right now in our congregation is the ministry of soup. At the end of the year, Sue Duckerman and Nelson Wan got together and made like 90 gallons of soup. And Sammy McCubbins and her team, primarily Sylvia Sizer, have been going throughout our congregation distributing soup. It's going to people who are recovering from surgery. It's going through people who are going through difficult times. It's going to people who might just need a little bit of encouragement. And it is a whole bunch of love and care that comes in a container of soup. And I just keep hearing from people that it reminds them that they're a part of a body that cares about them. Our reactions can make a huge difference in people's lives. We can remind them that we are present and that God is present. It'll help us, next point, to understand the relationship between the church and the culture. I think one of our biggest problems is that we keep trying to make our dedication to Jesus and our dedication to our cultural values somehow fit together. But we can't because they don't. We need to have a, a clear understanding that the church and the world are two very different entities, and often they're fundamentally in opposition to each other. We are chasing after two different things. Those two entities have two different goals, at least at our best. I know there's been lots of high-profile failings recently, and those are tragic, but I'd caution us against throwing stones unless your life would withstand that type of scrutiny. And besides, I have found that whenever there are problems in the church, wherever something tragic happens, we're generally talking about systemic failures, not just one person flaming out spectacularly. So at our best, the church is a very different institution than our culture is. When you have entities whose values are as different as die to yourself or grab all you can, you're going to have trouble fitting those two philosophies together. You're going to run into problems. And we as individuals will also run into problems. It might be people who disparage your faith. I mean, what kind of idiot are you to believe in stuff like that? Some of my kids' friends used to call it uh, getting off the logic train. If any of their friends began to have a relationship that, with Jesus, they'd be like, well, they got off the logic train. And that kind of hurts when your friends say things like that to you. Or the problems might be the frustration you feel when you realize that the culture only rewards success when Jesus is looking for servanthood. 
Culture wants us to hoard, and Jesus calls us to generous living. Culture exalts doing whatever we want, no matter the cost. Jesus wants us to think about how our actions affect other people and the world and creation and the entire kingdom of God. And we just can't make them fit together no matter how much we try. Which leads to the next point. You need to figure out what you want most in life. If I were to ask you to question the question, what would make your life perfect? What kind of things would you put on that list? To have plenty of money to do what you want, to have nice stuff, maybe to be healthy. You could probably come up with a great list, but I might argue that the things that would make your life perfect, the things that would make you most happy, might be peace and might be having a sense of hope. I've thought about this for a while. One of my friends years ago was trying to figure out how he would know whether his life was a success or not. And finally, he came down to this. And he said, if you could put on my tombstone, his wife and his kids loved him, I'd be happy with that. And because I knew him well enough to know, what he meant by that was not that he didn't care about anybody else, but that the people who were close to him respected him and loved him. That, that's a good way to value whether or not you have actually done what you wanted to do in life. We see all of this, as I mentioned before, carefully curated social media about people having a great time. But every once in a while, you see the view from behind the camera and you see that what you're seeing is really just a facade. Ultimately, the things that the culture tells us will make us happy really don't. They're a lie. There's this endless spectacle of celebrities and athletes spending enormous amounts of money traveling around the planet in private jets, going to expensive islands or resorts, trading partners, trading spouses, having what looks like a really great time, and then crashing and burning. There's nothing to be admired in that. Recently, I saw a picture of a bunch of people at a resort in Cancun, and I sort of laughed because they were all lying around the pool, and every single one of them had their tablet and were staring at their tablet. And I was like, you could stay home and do that. There was something inside of you that said, if I could only go to Cancun and lie by the pool, it will make me happy. Instead, they went to Cancun, and they were just doing what they would have done at home. This leads me to an observation. There are at least two kinds of peace. Our culture thinks that peace is the lack of conflict or the lack of war. Jesus thinks of peace as wholeness. And the peace that Jesus gives us is different. Jesus says, peace I live with, leave with you, my peace I give to you, not the type of peace the world gives. And that is because, my next point, Jesus' peace is not dependent on our circumstances. We live with so many if-onlys. If only I had a boyfriend. If only I was in a good marriage. If only I had my dream job. If only my kids weren't so rotten. If only, if only, if only, then we would be happy. Then we would have peace. Then we would feel whole. If only. But the peace that Jesus gives isn't tied to circumstances. 
The peace that Jesus gives is an anchor that allows us to not be tossed around by the storm. It's an acknowledgement that no matter what is going on around us, that we are held tight in Christ. We chase around after so many if-onlys looking for peace, and yet there's only one place where we'll find peace. There's only one place where we'll find satisfaction. St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions, and I often say if you don't know who said it, you can attribute it to St. Augustine, but Augustine really did say this. Augustine said, You have made us for yourselves, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Restlessness is that desire to be filled and to be fulfilled. Restlessness is literally the inability to rest because we're always looking, we're always searching for the next best thing, for the next tie, for the next person to care about us. Who's out there? Who loves me? Where else could I be than here? And we will always have that restlessness inside of us until we find our peace in God. And then that peace will not be dependent on our circumstances. Once you have that peace, you can go to Cancun and be on your tablet the whole time. I mean, really, what do I care? I'd be at Chichen Itza looking at the pyramids, but you lay by the pool, that's fine. But it will be something you're doing because it brings you joy, not because you were searching for something to fill you. Next point, we might not always get it, but we can always trust God. In the paragraphs right before this passage that I read, there's this great interaction between Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus is talking. He's giving, you know, this last discourse of his life. And in the middle of it, his disciples turn to each other and they go, I have no idea what he's talking about. And Jesus says, are you asking each other what I'm talking about? And then a little bit later, his disciples turn to each other and finally go, oh, now I get what he's saying. And then they say that to Jesus, okay, now, now we see. And I love stories like that in the Bible. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible, because stories like that are in the Bible. Because that's life how I experience it. I don't always get what God is doing. I don't always understand what God is saying. I don't always understand why I should do what I know I should do in order to honor and obey God. I don't always understand that. But I've learned that I can trust God even if I don't understand it. Uh, one of the great examples in our lives was when Megan and I began to tithe. We were in graduate school. I think we made $7,000 that year, which was uh, less than what our rent was. And we went to dinner at some people's house that we respected. And over the dessert course, he looked across the table and said, do you guys tithe? And we're like, tithe, we barely eat. And he challenged us to do that, and somehow it worked out. I didn't understand it. I didn't want to do it, but I did it. And I learned that I could trust God because God will always be faithful. For you, it might be, I don't understand why I'm faced with this challenge. I don't understand why things seem to be unraveling. I don't understand why I've got this health thing or why my marriage is terrible or fill in the blank. But in the midst of all of those things, you can trust God in it. Next, remember you know how it ends. You know how the book ends. You know how the story ends. So you can go back into the story and it changes how you perceive the story. It takes some of the tension out of it because you know how it ends. We know how the story ends. 
Um, one of the great middle of the uh, 20th century theologians, a guy named Oscar Kuhlmann, had this really cool illustration about the Second World War. And what Kuhlmann said was that the war in Europe was won on D-Day, June 6th, 1944. But the war wasn't over until VE Day, May 8th, 1945. There was this decisive action at D-Day that changed the course that made the end of the war inevitable, and yet it still took another 11 months until the war was actually over. And what Kuhlmann said is, we kind of live in that in-between. The, the die is cast, Jesus wins, but we're still living in the mop-up operation. But we know that VE Day is coming. That take heart that Jesus says to his disciples, take heart because I have overcome the world, can be translated as courage or cheer up or even don't give up. No matter what you're facing, because we know how the story ends. We know that ultimately Jesus overcomes the world. So what can we do in that meantime? I would sum it up like this. Practice peace. Some of us are fighting cancer. Some of us are struggling with degenerative diseases. Some of us are struggling with depression. Some of us are in difficult family situations. Some of us have parents who are driving us crazy, whether we're in their 50s or we're 18. Some of us are just done with the pandemic. Some of us are struggling with financial pressures and on and on and on. And some nights, as we lie awake in our bed staring at the ceiling, we're tempted to give up because life some days is just hard. And sometimes all you can see is a string of hard days in front of you. But when you're lying there staring at the ceiling, thinking about how hard things are, tempted to give up, because Jesus has overcome the world. Let me tell you about my week last week. I got up on Wednesday morning and the dog was really, really sick. I called my vet, he could see him in two weeks, but he said the dog needs to be seen right away. I called the local emergency room and talked to the vet and the dog said, the doctor said, your dog needs to be seen right away, but we can't get him in for about seven hours. But if you take your dog to Silverdale, they should be able to get him in. So I drive to Silverdale and my dog needed to be seen. And I'm not gonna tell you how much money that I spent because if you're not a dog person, you won't get it. But let's say that I invested in the dog that day. Brought the dog home, dog's gonna be fine. There will be more Bailey stories in the future. Megan comes home from work on Thursday, and she says, the strangest thing happened. All day long, the alarm on the car kept going off. And I'm like, oh, that, that's strange. So I was able to get the car into the dealer on Friday morning, and the dealer called me and said, yeah, part of the computer is out, and you're gonna have to get that replaced. Otherwise, not only will you not be able to turn the alarm off, you won't be able to open the car door, nor start the car. So this was a pretty big deal. And our warranty is long ago in the rear view mirror. So we're like, well, I guess we need to drive the car, so go ahead. 
So we dropped the car off in Tacoma and we got in my car and we drove up to the Van Gogh immersion experience, which you should go to, it was really, really great. And we came home and we walked into our kitchen and our dishwasher had broken and we had had a flood and all of our hardwood floors were buckling. And at this point, Michael was very tempted to give up. And it reminded me of talking to my sister a week or two ago. And she was telling me about a sermon that Megan had preached one time. And Megan said, sometimes I have these really articulate prayers where I say these great things to God. And other times I just go, here. And this was one of those days where I just went, here. I'm done. I cannot handle this anymore. Here, you're just going to have to do something with this. Um, and then, two days later, our oven, rather spectacularly, flamed out. I'll just leave the rest to your imagination. So Michael is back again going, here. But you know what? Even that simple prayer, even that inarticulate, I cannot deal with this anymore, God, I have to give this thing to you, reminds us of a very important truth. Even at the end of our rope, <laughs> no matter how bad things get, we can still tap into the resources of the God of the universe. Even just being able to do that reminds us of who God is and what he has promised us. We can practice peace. We can remind ourselves of who God is. We cannot give up. We can turn to God, even if it's inarticulate. Recently at one of his Angelus's, Pope Francis said, what if we checked our Bibles as often as we checked our cell phones? What if we did that? What if you dug in and found some verses about peace? I'm a little bit ahead of you. Matthew 11:28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, but every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. What if you just keep digging up these scriptures and referring to them? And if you can't memorize them, put them on a three by five card and paste it on your mirror. Stick it on your dashboard. Put it next to your computer where you'll constantly be reminded that God brings you peace. Practice that. And take some deep breaths. Pray honestly. God can handle it. God can handle your frustrations. Read the Psalms. It talks about all sorts of things in there. There are some things that are worth getting riled up about. Injustice, the suffering of the innocent. You know, some things you need to pray honestly about that are hard and just give those things to God and figure out how you need to work to help in those two. And as you practice peace, remember that it's all tied to what Jesus has done for us and how it all ends. So let me ask you three questions. 
What area of your life do you need to hear Jesus say, take heart, I have overcome the world? Number two, in what area of your life are you feeling the conflict between Christ and culture? And number three, what's one thing you can do this week to help you experience God's peace?